I'm Laura Engel, and this is episode five of Grim Tide. Shannon Gilbert had been missing for 18 months before her body was found in a marsh near the Oak Beach community in December of 2011. The search for Shannon had set off a series of remarkable events. Ten bodies were found. A police chief was brought down in a scandalous investigation. And the hunt for a serial killer began. And soon came yet another twist. Police concluded Shannon was not murdered or connected in any way to the other cases, despite obvious similarities with the victims. The uh, medical examiner said the cause is indeterminate. Based on the condition of her remains, it can't be determined how she, how she expired. So that's, that's the theory that we're going with. The police conclusion was never accepted by the Gilbert family. So much so, they refused to bury Shannon's remains until an independent autopsy was conducted. Her remains lay in the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office for four years. The family really wanted an independent autopsy conducted on Shannon's remains. They did not trust the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office. Dr. Michael Bodden, a famed forensic pathologist, offered to do his own autopsy on behalf of the Gilbert family with their attorney, John Ray, and a Fox News camera crew in attendance. The Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office refused to allow the autopsy to be performed in their morgue. In March of 2015, we all met at a funeral home on the Nassau-Suffolk County line. And they brought Shannon's remains in, in a body bag in this exam room. It took Dr. Bodden several hours to uh, put together the the skeleton. And some of Shannon's hand bones and uh, bones in her feet were missing. Dr. Bodden attributed that to animals perhaps moving bones around um, post-mortem. As it decomposed, the, the bones had to move around. And they have animals poking at the bones. This could be some animal activity. You know, that uh, a rodent or a mouse or a rat. If she'd been found a year earlier, then there'd be more of the body to examine. It would have been more intact. Without any soft tissue, Baden only had bones to examine. One of the disadvantages here is that this is not the way the body was when it was found three and a half years ago. There was tissue on the body. There was tissue on this. And this was all boiled away so the anthropologist could look at the bones uh, without the tissues on them. Did she die of some kind of neck compression, such as by manual strangulation? If somebody is being uh, abused or threatened, as Shannon was, at the night she disappeared, the quickest way to stop yelling and screaming for help is to squeeze on the neck. And if one squeezes on the neck tight enough, one can cause not only inability to scream, but also uh, death. So that's the most common finding in women who are uh, murdered. Working on his theory of strangulation, Dr. Bodden focused his attention to the hyoid bone. It's a small bone found in the neck. It's shaped like a U with two so-called horns sticking out from a slender eye-shaped piece, or what Dr. Bodden calls the body of the hyoid bone. In Shannon's case, the horns of the hyoid were missing. If at the time she died, she'd been strangled, 
those would be the air areas uh, that would get the most attention by little animals uh, in the area. And they would pay attention to the small bones of the neck, especially if there was some bleeding from compression of the neck uh, around the fractures. When a bone is fractured, there'll be some blood comes out of it, and that attracts animals. So the fact that the only bones really missing were the parts of the hyoid bone would suggest that there was animal activity that removed the bones. And he noted that there was roughness on one side of the hyoid bone. The roughness on one side of the hyoid bone made Baden question whether Shannon had been strangled. The uh, remnant of the hyoid bone that shows the uh, roughness would be that there was a fracture separation with the uh, horns of the body and the horn, which would be caused by uh, compression of the neck. I think the most likely cause of her death was manual strangulation, homicide. To him, it looked like it could be a homicide. And at that time, that was, that was a headline. That was a big deal. Because up until that point, the theory was she drowned in a marsh. Baden could not conclusively say how Shannon died. In response to his autopsy, we asked the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office to look at his conclusions and his report, uh, and they uh, did not change their ultimate conclusion that it was uh, undetermined. It remains uh, to be uh, classified as not a homicide by the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office. Officially, Shannon's cause of death remains undetermined. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. What is not in question is Shannon's legacy. Shannon Gilbert uh, was really the catalyst of of finding these women uh, and going back to 2010. If it were not for Shannon there would be no investigation into the Long Island serial killer. So we could talk for hours and go back and forth. Well, was Shannon connected? Maybe she is, maybe she isn't. The bottom line is if Shannon Gilbert never disappeared, we would never have found those bodies, very likely. You know, in some ways, she, in death, was uh, a champion for these other victims. In January of 2020, after nearly a decade, there still had been no person of interest named. The police began a new initiative to reach out to the public for help. It has been more than nine years since Suffolk officers searching along Ocean Parkway for Shannon Gilbert, who had been reported missing months earlier, discovered the first set of remains belonging to Melissa Bartholomew on December the 11th, of 2010. Today, we are launching a website dedicated to sharing information with the public about these unsolved murders and also providing a new way for the public to provide us with tips. Feeling that they needed to get more momentum in the case and generate new leads, the police released a key piece of evidence they had been holding on to for more than a decade. A black leather belt embossed with the letters HM or WH was recovered during the initial stages of this investigation. We believe 
that the belt was handled by the suspect and did not belong to any of the victims. The idea behind the release of the belt was that it's pretty unique and we were hoping that someone who had seen that belt in the past would remember it. Why they held on to the evidence and how they released it is a source of frustration to the families involved and to many in the public. Nine years with this piece of evidence, which you clearly think is going to be something that's going to be able to move this case forward at this point. Why did you sit on it for nine years? Why now? So again, a case is always evaluated uh, based on the facts on the ground and what's going on. We're constantly reevaluating. We have decided now to leverage uh, social media, obviously with the website. So now all of a sudden they release a piece of evidence. And the piece they release is utterly inadequate. Depending on how you look at the letters, it's engraved embossed letters on the inside of a belt. They do not release the belt. They do not tell you the size and shape of the belt. They tell you nothing but an up-close photograph of these two letters that are tinted as sort of a light blue. Later in 2020, the huge DNA databases collected through the expanding use of home ancestry kits enabled investigators to finally identify the victim known for 10 years as just Jane Doe number six. Last year, through a partnership with the FBI, we were able to use genetic genealogy, which allows us to take DNA and put it into a law enforcement accessible public DNA database, see if there's a uh, relative that can be found through that process, and they were able to uh, track down and identify Jane Doe number six as Valerie Mack. They actually identified another family member, and then they got uh, DNA from that individual, and it was uh, the son of Valerie Mack. Investigators are also using advanced technology to extract DNA from evidence preserved for more than a decade. We were invited into the crime lab for an exclusive look at this new technology. What we do is we spray this buffer solution, which is in this IV bag, mm -hmm. onto an object using this hose. This bottle will fill up with the solution that now has cellular material in it. Mm -hmm. We'll swirl it through the bottle and pour it into the filter. And the cellular material will adhere to the filter if there's any present. It was great because it gives us a second opportunity to examine these items. Um, Many of these items have already been swapped for DNA, and this is just a last um, technique for us to be able to get to the DNA. Are you retesting every single piece of evidence with new technology? So that's, that's the goal. As all these new pieces of technology are being used, you feel like you're getting closer to an answer? You know, I'm certainly optimistic with the phone analysis, because with the phone analysis, it's a work in progress, and the more we put into the software and the more we study the results, we are getting a clearer picture of uh, what happened during the time uh, these women were murdered. Uh, that's for sure. Perhaps the most promising tool of all is the new technology purchased by CINI to painstakingly examine cell phone records dating back years, even those thought to be irretrievable. And so many people watching this case have been worried about the cell phone data and that, you know, it's old and, and it's fallen off of the grid, so to speak. We're talking about over 5 million data points. Is there something that's similar among the victims, mm -hmm. uh, geographically or, or otherwise? And you can take those 5 million data points and perhaps come up with a smaller subset 
of phone numbers that become relevant to your case. Now you're whittling down. You're whittling down. You're going to five million to you know, a very manageable subset where you can actually then take those numbers and put detectives on the case and to work, work on finding out whether or not any of those numbers has a connection to our murders. What are you going to show us right here? This enables us to view all of the cell sites for a case on a map at once. And this is something that you're doing now going back in time. So you're rewinding the tape, so to speak, of where cell phone towers um, picked up signals. Yes, we're basically applying new tech to these to these old records and we're, um, we can look at them in a way that we were not able to previously. While Sini would not say whether authorities have a suspect or person of interest in the case, he confirmed to Fox News that investigators have certain cell phone numbers they're looking at in their pursuit of the killer or killers. Do you have specific phone numbers in mind that you're looking at, that you're tracking other than the victims? Yes. But is there anything that you can tell us about who may be on your radar? No, we're not able to talk about specific uh, persons of interest, whether we have them, whether we don't, who they may be. For the families of the victims, time will never heal their pain. Fox News wasn't able to speak with all 11 of the victims' families, but of the families we did speak with, stories of women with hopes and dreams and love for family emerged. Missy Can remembers her sister, Maureen Brainerd Barnes. She was really smart. Maureen wrote a lot of poetry. Um, she really wanted to be a poet, but also be a songwriter. Um, she was really good at it. I know there was a couple of times that her like poetry was published in books. There was many times that any time that one of her friends or even like me or my brother needed something and she could give it to you, she would. Maureen could have been anything. Her life was cut short because someone thought that her life wasn't worth anything to anybody, but they were very wrong. She had a family that loved her and she loved the, the us, and she had such great and like aspiration for life. Megan Waterman, like many of the other women, was also a mother. Her daughter Lily, now 14, doesn't want her mom to be remembered as a faceless victim. She was human, even if her line of work wasn't the safest, wasn't the best. Her and all the other girls still deserve justice. Their case deserves to be talked about. They shouldn't be forgotten. She really was beautiful, inside and out. If she counted you as someone she loved, that was, she was gonna be by your side forever. Whatever you needed, you could call her. They were all beautiful women. As everybody is saying, they were daughters, sisters, cousins, nieces. They're victims of a evil man, and we will find him. If it, if it takes every breath we have, we will find him. We're not going to stop. Injustice will be served, one way or another. Could modern technology finally solve this years-old mystery? That's the hope of family and friends of the victims who were murdered and cruelly discarded along these shores. 
and the investigators determined to bring them justice. At Fox, we will stay on this case too, as the hunt continues for the Long Island serial killer. From Oak Beach, New York, I'm Laura Ingle. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.